I do have a lot to cover. The notes, as she said, are extensive. But the reason for that is because this is not a study on the book of Genesis, but I know that people will have questions. For example, when you get to Genesis 6 and you look at those strange verses about the sons of God with the daughters of men and giants in the land and Oh boy, people have a lot of questions about what exactly is that. So one of the appendixes to the lesson is with regard to that, okay? It was demonic. Um, And that's like a three-page appendix. Then there's another one that I came across when I was studying Dr. Sarfati's book on Genesis, and it was just so interesting about the chromosomes and how, and, and also something called mtDNA, that prove that we all came from three men and their wives, the ones that came off the boat to the ark. So that I thought was so interesting, I wanted to share it with you. And then the other one is on the ark's cargo, because a lot of people will scoff and they'll say, well, how could every all the animals fit in that ship? And how, how, did, they, how did they manage, you know, giant dinosaurs and feeding all them, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, I answer all of that with the, the dimensions of the, the ark and um, the fact that, you know, God wouldn't need to send the giant full-grown dinosaurs and hippopotami and elephants, right? Why not send the little ones? And then they wouldn't reproduce while they're on the ark. And then the Lord has a way of putting animals into hibernation. I know, I have a dachshund who sleeps all the time. I don't know how he can sleep that much. <laughs> but also, the, the ark was huge. It was way bigger than your children's little Bible picture books. You know, the little cute ark with the giraffe sticking his neck out the window. Get all that out of your mind. If you've ever been to Ken Ham's Creation Museum, anybody been there? Have, has anybody seen the ark? Yeah, it's massive, isn't it? It's huge. It's amazing. I can't wait to go. Um, all right, so anyway, that's why the lesson is about 20 pages long. <laughs> but... Um, It'll be worth it. You'll have fun reading it. Anyway, I thought I was clever. I came up with this title, and I couldn't fit the whole title on the board because that board's so narrow. But here's the title for our lesson today. Christ-Centered Archaeology. You like that? A-R-K. That really was original. I don't. It just popped in my brain. We're going to cover five chapters. Can you believe it? We're going to start at chapter 4. We're going to start at about uh, verse 17. All the way. Anyway, we're going to cover a lot of territory, so I better start. (laughs) There was a span of approximately 1,500 years between the fall of Adam and the flood of Noah. And the record of those 15 centuries is presented in God's very typical way. Short, but profound. Brief, but full of information. The list and the description of Adam's descendants through Cain are found in chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. That's not very much space for Cain's descendants, just a few verses. And all we have included in the Cainites, they're called Cainites, all we have included is the list of five men and three women. 
never any mention of the Lord in the Cainite lineage. Interesting, too, we aren't given any of the the years of their lives, how long they lived. Nor are we given how old they were when they had a particular son, as we are given in the Sethite lineage, which is the Messianic lineage. We're not even given the words, and he died, about the Cainites. And I got to thinking about that. That kind of tells us that their lives were wasted. God didn't even bother to have Moses tell us how long they lived. Didn't even say, and they died. And we have all that information with the Sethites. You know, a person who doesn't live for the Lord, their life is really lived in vain, isn't it? Mm, very, very sad. So we only have five, five men and three women. And what we read about, no mention of the Lord, but we read about a rapidly developed humanistic secular society. The evil that began in Eden, in the Garden of Eden with Adam, had soon been flagrantly displayed in his son Cain, who had decided to do things his way instead of God's way. And in the process, he murdered his own brother, Abel. Well, sin continued to increase rapidly as a proud, godless society developed from Cain's descendants, who, like him, decided to do things their way instead of God's way. And along with demonic assistance, and that's what chapter 6, the first few verses, is all about, they eventually even influenced the descendants of Adam's other children, Adam and Eve lived in their, to be in their 900s. Can you imagine? We think somebody today is old if they live to be 100. But can you imagine almost living to be 1,000 and being married to the same man all that time? <laughs> and having 40 kids? <laughs> yeah. Whew. But I, I just can't even perceive living that long. The average age before the flood was 912 years old. Wow, it is unbelievable. Anyway, so eventually, you know, and so Adam and Eve had many children besides Cain, Abel, and Seth. They had others. And, and eventually the Cainites and the demons together, they influenced all of their other children as well. Even those in the messianic lineage of Seth, who of course replaced Abel to be the one to bear the woman's seed that would lead to Jesus. Well, the last Cainite we ever hear from before all of them were destroyed in the flood. They were all wiped out. No Cainites survived the flood. Uh, the last one we ever hear from was a man named Lamech. Now, don't confuse him. Oh, I spelled it wrong. See, number nine should have a C-H at the end. Um, there's two Lamechs. One was a bad Lamech. He was a Cainite. There was a good Lamech who was the father of Noah. He was a Sethite. But this bad Lamech is the last one we ever hear from a Cainite and he was the seventh generation from Adam during his lifespan the world saw a new age in which science and culture and technology greatly advanced we even hear about musical instruments being created for the first time a lot of advancement men were really smart back then smarter than we are but so also, unfortunately, was there an advancement in immorality. 
and rebellion to the creator. Lamech openly defied God's ordained institution of marriage. He was the first recorded bigamist. He had two wives. He took for himself two wives. That was not God's way of things. He also epitomized the new morality that was taking over the world, which focused on the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, pleasure, you know, all those kind of things, outward appearance. And we know this because of the names of his wives and the one daughter he had who was given, an, I mean, he probably had a lot of daughters, but one is given a name. And names in the Bible are important. We're going to see that this morning. But they're especially important in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. What were the names of his two wives? One's name in Hebrew meant ornamental. The other one's name meant seductress. The one daughter's name meant pleasure. So what does that tell you right there? It was all about the lust of the flesh. In his arrogant boast, this man was really full of himself, this Lamech. He has a boast where he, it's actually a song, I guess, he made up. It's called the Song of the Sword. And that tells you right there something, doesn't it? Song of the Sword. It's in verses 23 and 24. I'm in chapter 4. Did you know that? Did I tell you that? Verses 23 and 24. It's called the Song of the Sword. And in that, Lamech is bragging that he killed a young man who had wounded him. And then he also brags about how he can avenge himself even 70 times more than God was able to avenge anyone who tried to kill Cain. I mean, he's just a braggart. He was an evil egotist with no reverential fear of God and no concern, really, for his fellow man. He really manifested the spirit of Antichrist. You know, there's many Antichrists. There's a spirit of Antichrist in the world. He represented the spirit of Antichrist in the anti-antediluvian world. You know what antediluvian means? Before the flood. He was the spirit of Antichrist before the flood. Because there's a Sethite who's comparable to him, who's also seven generations from Adam. Well then, that's all we hear about the Cainites. They're over with, with the flood. Then beginning in verse 25 of chapter 4, all the way through to the end of chapter 5, we read, first of all, about the birth of Seth, who was appointed. His name actually means appointed or raised up in the place of his brother Abel to carry on the messianic lineage. Now, in contrast to the Cainites, what's interesting is that we, we don't find out really anything about their occupations except that a few of them were evangelists and preachers but we do read about their relationship with the lord now with the canaanites nothing was mentioned about the lord but with the sethites it's a completely different picture we also are given the years of their lives we are given the year that the man gave birth to the son that would carry on the messianic lineage. And then with each and every one of them, except one, we have the words, and he died. So that's a difference. Now we find out that during the life of Seth's son, Enos, E-N-O-S, right here, number three, 
third from Adam, that's Seth's son. Now, he had lots of children, but Enos was going to be the one to carry on the seed of the woman. And his name in Hebrew means mortal or frail man. We're all mortals, aren't we? And we're frail. We're only one heartbeat away from death. We're frail men. That's what his name means. During his lifetime, we read about the first revival that ever occurred on planet Earth. Because if you look at verse 26, it says that men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, that's a good thing, isn't it? You see, men like Adam, who was still alive, Adam and Seth and Enos and others, there were other godly men besides those few, they realized that sin was not just a mortal flaw in their human nature, that instead they were utterly frail mortals when it came to sin. They came to realize that apart from the grace and the mercy of the Lord's promise to send a Savior, Genesis 3.15, sin was fatal individually and sin was fatal corporately for the whole world. So they did the right thing and they called upon the name of the Lord and there was a great revival. Martin Luther, you know the great reformer Martin Luther, he calls these ten men in the lineage of, of Adam and the Sethites, if you count, it's from Adam to Noah, there were 10 men. He calls them the antediluvian heroes and says that he actually went as far as to say that besides Jesus and John the Baptist, they were the greatest men that ever lived because of the fact that they lived in such a dark time and yet they upheld their testimony and he I give you a quote in your notes, but he talks about how strong they were in their faith with worldwide corruption going on and violence. We're going to talk about how wicked the world got very in very short period of time. Isn't that sad? Mm. Well, a very, very interesting Sethite was Enoch. See him down here, number seven? Ah, seven. He's he's comparable to Lamech, the bad Lamech, who was also seven generations from Adam. Enoch is famous, isn't he? We all know about Enoch. He's in verses 21 to 24. And his name in Hebrew means dedicated or teacher or dedicated teacher or teacher dedicated. <laughs> However you want. But he was a dedicated teacher. He was a prophet of God. How do we know he was a prophet? Well, because he preached. What did he preach? I can actually tell you what he preached because of the little epistle of Jude. Isn't that amazing? Jude 14 and 15 tells us what Enoch, seven generations from Adam, what he preached. And here it is. It's a, it's a long run-on sentence. Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him you think he was living in ungodly times wow how many times do you say ungodly so we know what he preached and interestingly he not only was warning the people of the pre-flood days about impending judgment But he was also, his words are used to this day because the Holy Spirit 
what he inspired him to say and the fact that it's in the New Testament, his words are really a warning to ungodly people today of impending judgment. Now, Enoch, again, only seven generations removed from Adam, was actually technically, he was preaching about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. You see, he said, behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. Did the Lord come at the time of the flood with ten thousand of his saints? No. Did he even come at his first coming with ten thousand of his saints? No. Hardly anybody knew he came. He came to Bethlehem as a baby. And he certainly didn't come to execute judgment at his first coming, did he? He came to redeem, to seek and to save that which was lost. So really, Enoch was preaching, and this just blows me away. I mean, you know, he didn't know all that. That was a spirit using his mouth. He was preaching about the second coming when the Lord will appear with 10,000 of his saints. And if you know him, you will be with him when he returns. And when he returns, it will be to execute judgment. Well, so Enoch was a prophet of God because of what he preached. He was also a prophet of God by the name he gave to his son who would carry on the messianic lineage. And that son's name was, number eight, Methuselah. Do you know what Methuselah means in Hebrew? When he dies, it will come. When he dies, it will come. That was prophetic. The year Methuselah died, what came? The flood. Amazing. Hebrews 11.5, and yes, Enoch is in the, the uh, Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 5. It tells us that Enoch pleased God. In fact, he pleased God so much. Wouldn't you like that to be on your epitaph, your tombstone? He pleased God so much that the words, and he died, are not included in the, the uh, genealogy here in, in uh, chapter 5 of Genesis. Rather, we read that Enoch, and you'll look at this, it's in verse 24 of chapter 5, he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, a lot of people probably scratch their head all through the Old Testament wondering, what, what did that mean? And he was not, and God took him. Hmm, well, that sounds like God just took him, but in Hebrews, it's made clear. Hebrews 11.5 says he was translated to heaven. He just was walking one day with the Lord, and the Lord just decided to take him up and away, (laughs) carried up. What's another word for that? Raptured, yes, caught up, caught up. So many believe that Enoch, seven generations from Adam, is a picture and type of the rapture of the church. By the way, what is our commission as a church? What did the Lord give us as a great commission? Go ye therefore and do what? No. Teach. Go ye therefore and teach. And then it says again, teaching all nations. Twice the word teach. We are to be dedicated teachers. What does Enoch's name mean? Dedicated teachers. Um, So where was I? Enoch. All right. Enoch lives seven generations from Adam. He represents the rapture of the church, Lamech, the bad guy, the bad Lamech, is seven generations from Adam, and he represents the spirit of Antichrist. You think those two things are going to be sort of around the same time? Didn't the Lord say that his second coming would be as in the days of Noah? 
Well, the church will be raptured at the end of the seventh stage of church history. Where do we have a prophecy of church history? Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Those aren't just seven Asia Minor churches that, li- that were in existence long ago during the days of the early church. They represent prophetically church history. There are seven stages. I firmly believe we're in the last, the seventh one, which is the lukewarm church of Laodicea. After that, then the very next chapter, chapter 4, begins with John being called up hither. Come up, John! <laughs> and he's carried up into the third heaven represents the rapture of the church so it's very this is all very interesting um it's interesting to notice that in both cases the days preceding noah and the days preceding christ's return there are three groups of people involved there is the group who perishes in judgment which is all the unbelievers there are those who are preserved through the judgment such as noah and his family in the ark and the sealed 144,000 Jews who will be 12,000 from each tribe, like flaming Apostle Pauls. Can you imagine the world with 144,000 Pauls? I mean, they're going to be evangelists to the Gentiles of the world during the seven years of the tribulation. And many, many, many people will be saved, praise the Lord. A lot of them will be martyred. But those 144,000 are preserved through the judgment. And then there's the third group, which is those who um, will be removed before the judgment, represented by Enoch and also by the church. Am I a pre-tribulation rapturist? Yes, I am. (laughs) And I can give you a hundred reasons if you want to come see me later on. I actually wrote down a hundred reasons one time for why I am. Okay, Genesis 6-5 tells us that God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that, and this blows me away when I read this, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil, I mean, men never had a good thought it was only evil continually now the last time moses told us that god saw something was a completely different picture it was at the end of his creation work and what god saw he declared to be very good genesis 1:31 very good now only 5 chapters later his eyes see a vastly different picture global wickedness that was the external result of internal wickedness. Because where does evil begin? In the heart, not the hands. Because the heart is evil, man does evil. And all he sees is evil. Every imagination is only evil continually. So I ask you, what caused such a tremendous difference between the very good situation of Genesis 1.31 and the only evil continually situation of Genesis 6.5? What caused the difference? What made the difference? Sin. Three-letter word, and I is the middle letter. <laughs> ah, it's all about, like Lamech, all about him. Sin caused the difference. Men followed so much in the way of Cain and in the way of Lamech, who were both Satan's seed, that they opened themselves up to demonic influence. You can open yourself, not if you're a Christian, because 
The Holy Spirit isn't going to occupy the same soul as a demon. But if you're not saved and you mess around with the occult and dangerous things, drugs, you can open yourself up to demonic possession. And that's what went on in Genesis 6, uh, verses 2 to 4. God's holiness, right, rightfully so, his holiness was aroused against their sin. It just got really evil on earth but it also grieved him it grieved his heart now i know it says he it repented him but god it says elsewhere in scripture does god doesn't lie and he doesn't repent so it really the word if you look at it and study it it really means it just grieved his heart that man his greatest creation the one he had made in his own image did not reciprocate his love and it was actually blatantly manifesting every characteristic that contradicted the holy person of God. Instead of being loving, they were hateful. Instead of being faithful, they were unfaithful. Everything God is, they were the opposite. Who were they following? God's number one enemy, Satan. And so it just grieved his heart. As a consequence, he goes and says in verse 7 that the beasts of the earth, the animals and the creeping things and the fowl of the air, which he created specifically for man. He created the whole universe specifically for man's pleasure and enjoyment. All the animals, everything was created for man. Well, they would also be destroyed, except, of course, he would preserve every kind through a pair. But they would be destroyed because of man's wickedness. The same thing happened with the fall, didn't it? When man fell, the animal world was also cursed. And the, the earth itself was cursed. You see, sin doesn't just affect the sinner, does it? It has a domino effect. Sin reaches out and it contaminates others, even the innocent. Well, if matters had ended with Genesis 6-7, Satan would have been victorious. It wouldn't have taken him very long at all, just 10 generations. He would have been utterly victorious in defeating God's plan to send a redeemer and redeem mankind. But, of course, that would never happen, would it? Because God has what we call incommunicable attributes. Incommunicable. I didn't say that right. I don't think I've ever used that term before. Incommunicable attributes, which means that they are attributes of his person that no one else has, only the triune Godhead. What are they? There's only three of them. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He alone has those attributes. Therefore, he would not allow his sovereign plan of redemption to be thwarted. He always has saving solutions for seemingly hopeless situations. Remember that. With God, all things are possible, no matter how humanly impossible they might appear. He can do anything. And so the godly seed of the woman he made sure was preserved in a man named Noah. Noah. Good name. His name in Hebrew means rest. We can call him Mr. Rest or Mr. Comfort. 
That's what his name means. It's a great name. He found grace in God's eyes. Look at verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8. I'm glad that God's eyes saw something other than evil continually. His eyes saw Noah, and Noah found grace in God's eyes. One man out of a whole world. And don't think the world just had a few hundred people on it. By this time, the world was very, very populated, and I'm talking about millions of people. If you live to be 912 years old, you can have a lot of children, and it just didn't, like rabbits, you know, it didn't take long for the world to be populated. No birth control either. Well, when Noah was born, six of his ancestors were still living, from Enos, the third generation, all the way to Lamech, his father. They were all still alive when Noah was born. But... By the time he was 600 years old and the flood came, Genesis 7-1, we know how old he was when the flood came, all of his paternal ancestors had died, including Methuselah. So he alone stood as a refreshing oasis in the midst of a dark, 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 demonic, dreary desert that was literally given over to everything vile that man and demons could together could conceive. He was the one man, therefore. Think of his position. One man. Can you imagine being the only family on planet Earth that still knows and loves and serves the Lord? The only family on Earth? So he was definitely the target of all of the evil ones fiery darts he was the man if he could you know if satan could contaminate him that would be it victory for satan but god's shield of grace protected noah the words grace and just appear for the very first time in the scripture in verses eight and nine and they are with regard to this man noah grace and just he was a just man now there were other righteous people who preceded him But Noah's righteousness shined brighter, especially when they all died off. But his brightness shined bright. I mean, he's going to be one of those great shining stars up in the heavens. Not a literal star, but he's going to shine brightly because of the darkness of the background of worldwide evil. We are told he walked with God. Who else had we just heard walked with God? They're the only two in the whole Bible where it says they walked with God. Enoch? And Noah. Now, Enoch was translated to heaven without dying. Why wasn't Noah translated to heaven if he walked with God? Because God needed him here on earth. He had a really important position for Noah to remain here on earth. He would be the new representative Adam of the post-flood world. You know, really, Noah is the second Adam. Because we all come from Adam, and then we all again come from Noah, don't we? So really, it's not right to call Jesus the second Adam. He is called the last Adam. But Noah is the second Adam. Noah was not only a man of great faith. You know, Ezekiel, remember when we studied Daniel, he mentioned three righteous men. Ezekiel did twice. He he said three righteous men, and they were Noah Daniel and Job. Both times, Noah is first. Noah was really 
a godly man, a man of great faith. In fact, in Hebrews 11, he is the only one whose epitaph begins and ends with the words by faith. You know how it says by faith Adam, by faith Enoch, by faith Sarah, and it goes all the way through? Well, when it comes to Noah, it begins with by faith Noah and it ends by faith. And that right there tells us what a great man of faith he was. But he was also a man who bore great fruit. Now I know you're thinking, (laughs) it might not seem like a whole lot of fruit to be preaching as long as he did and to only have seven people enter into the safety of the ark. And those were his own family members. Wouldn't you be a little frustrated after 75 years maybe of preaching and nobody but your own family is listening to you? You'd say, well, I sure didn't have a very fruitful ministry. I would have quit long ago, long ago. But he didn't. He was persistent. And he really did bear a lot of fruit because think of this. His second son, and there we go with the second again, son. His second son, Shem, through him would come Abraham. Through Abraham would come the nation of Israel. And through the nation of Israel came who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's certainly being fruitful right there, isn't it? Besides, he was very, Noah was very fruitful in his testimony. He not only built an ark, but he built a great testimony by way of his godly character and his faithfulness in the midst of global corruption. Do you know that Noah's name is mentioned 50 times in the scripture? I'd be happy if my name was in there once. (laughs) His name is in there 50 times, and he's in nine different books of the Bible. Now, can you say he didn't bear a lot of fruit? He's bearing fruit among us today. Now, to Noah, God further revealed his plan to ultimately save the human race. His plan involved a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. You think God means it when he says all flesh? All flesh. And his plan also included an ark of salvation for anyone who would simply enter it. So there we have justice because he he is just and holy. So he has to judge sin, but he's also merciful. So that ark was open for anyone who wanted to avoid the judgment of his wrath on their sin. So where else did we see justice and mercy holding hands on the cross? I think we also saw it in the Garden of Eden. Remember when he had to drive them out of the garden because of their sin and he had to judge their sin, but then he guarded the entrance so that they wouldn't get in there and eat from the tree of life and live forever and fall in human nature, you know, in their sin nature. So that was justice and mercy. And then, of course, we have the cross. That was another place where God's judgment against sin and his great mercy worked hand in hand to deliver mankind from the power of Satan. And his power is in sin and death. Well, repeatedly, if you go, I hope you'll read these verses during the week, but repeatedly the Lord says to Noah how the earth was filled with violence. He says it over and over, filled with violence, and how all flesh was corrupt, and that he would destroy all flesh by a flood of waters. He says that over and over and over again. He said, everything that is in the earth shall die. So, Do you think the Lord means it when he says something like that? Or do you think he just sent a local flood and only a few animals died? Well, I take him literally. It it was a global flood. Oh, there's 
there's evidence worldwide of a global flood. Now, the evolutionists look at it from their perspective, which is totally wrong, but if you look at it from a catastrophic flood's point of view, the evidence is abundant. Plus, wouldn't it be ridiculous, think of this, wouldn't it be ridiculous for Noah to spend decades building a mammoth-sized box? And the word for ark actually means box. It was shaped like a box. Wouldn't it be silly to spend decades building that ship If God was only going to send a local flood, wouldn't it have just been easier for Noah and his family to migrate to another place? They could have migrated somewhere else in a year instead of building a ship for how many decades it took him. Now, I know you think 120, but that's technically not right. I don't want to get into that, but it took him about 75 years to build the ark. So couldn't he have just moved somewhere else if it was just going to be a local flood? Does the Lord tell, and and wouldn't that be a waste of his time and his energy and all those materials? Does the Lord tell people to do foolish or wasteful things? Also, (laughs) yeah, they do do it on their own, but he doesn't tell them to do that. And you know, a, a ship of that size wouldn't be able to float in a local flood. It was too big, too heavy. It would scrape the bottom. This was a global flood. By the way, if you throw out a global flood, you might as well throw out Peter. Because Peter said the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. And if you throw out Peter, you got to throw out Jesus. Because guess what he said? The flood came and took them all away. Genesis 6 contains what modern shipbuilders agree are ideal measurements to ensure the safest of seaworthy vessels. Bible scoffers have to explain... Ask them this if you have somebody who doubts the scripture. How how could Noah have devised such a perfectly proportioned seafaring vessel over 4,000 years ago without a model to copy and without a blueprint to follow? You see, apart from God's help, the, the poor guy had never seen rain before. There was this protective water vapor canopy around the earth, which is why people live so long. It protected the ozone, you know, there was a thick ozone layer and the radiation from the sun rays wasn't coming through. And it was like a tropical greenhouse, greenhouse, and people just lived longer. And he had, so, and all it didn't remember, it was just mist, mist, dew on the, on the ground to keep things wet. But he'd never seen rain. He'd never seen a rowboat, probably, much less a ship the size that he was told to construct. So apart from God's help, he could not have devised the dimensions of such an amazingly unsinkable structure. It has been demonstrated hydrodynamically that a box of the ark's proportions would almost have to be completely vertical, I mean at a 90-degree angle, in order to flip over, in order to capsize. This thing was unsinkable. I mean, just short of 90 degrees, and it would still right itself. Do you know that they didn't create a ship that big with those exact proportions? They figured out, they could have learned all these things earlier. But they didn't build a ship that big until 1858. Wow. So ask your Bible, Scott, well, how did Noah how to build a ship like that? And again, get that picture of the little... Little boat with the giraffe sticking out of your minds. Nothing like that. 
the interior space, and this is another thing they scoff about, you know, the animals couldn't fit, but the space inside the ark was equivalent to 522 railroad cars. Now, have you ever had to stop at a railroad and a freight train goes by and you're in a hurry, got to get some? Don't tempt God by trying to go around the gate, okay? Don't ever do that. I just wait. Try to be patient. But, you know, you're always looking for the caboose, and some of those just go on forever. Well, can you imagine sitting there waiting for 10 freight trains <laughs> with uh, 52 boxcars each to pass in front of you? That's how much space was available in the ark. And, of course, when that last boxcar finally passes and you see the caboose and it's the end of the 10th freight train in a row, guess what they decide to do? Back up. You got it. Back up. You've had that happen, right? <laughs> it, could, it, it contained three levels. There were three stories, three stories high, the ark. It could carry over 125,000 animals, the average size of a sheep. I know when we think of animals, our minds always go to the big animals, but you know there's more small animals than there are big animals, and as I said, it probably took, it would make sense that God sent the smaller ones, the babies, so the average size of all animals is the size of a sheep, 125,000. The inner floor space of the ark's three stories, three decks, was over 95,000 square feet. Each floor of the ark was divided into rooms. Actually, the word is nesting places, dwelling places. And they varied in size depending on type of animal was going to be put in them to rest. The ark also had a window. Most Bible authorities believe it went completely around the circumference of the ark and was up high near the roof. Now, they don't want Noah and his family to focus on the storm, so they're just, you know, going to look up, set your affection on things above, keep focused on the Lord. He'll protect you. The window was up. It also served for light, would be really dark in the ark without the window, and air ventilation. So the window was important. There was also how many doors in the ark? One door, a single door. And interestingly, look at verse 16, chapter 6, verse 16. Where is the door put? In the side thereof. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. Side thereof. Hmm. I got to thinking about that. Well, you know what? It was out of the side of Adam that Eve was formed, the mother of all living. Noah came out of the side of the ark, and he became the father of all living. Jesus was pierced in the side, and he is the savior of all living. Well, after hearing about the coming flood judgment and receiving instructions on how to build the ark, Noah didn't hear from the Lord again until it was time to enter the ark. And that was a long time. And during those long years of heaven's silence, he just kept working persistently on constructing that ship. So the reputation of this crazy shipbuilder, don't you know he was mocked? <laughs> Building a ship in the middle of nowhere near water? This crazy guy who kept decade after decade after decade after decade building this ship because he thought a worldwide flood was coming and no one had even seen rain his reputation 
spread far and wide throughout the world. There were no oceans separating continents back in that day. You know, the topography of the world today is completely different than the pre-flood world topography. So men could just walk, you know, over the whole world and spread out. But word about this crazy nutcase spread everywhere. (laughs) Finally, and finally, after years of being mocked and scorned, he again heard from the Lord. And this is in 7-1. The Lord finally talks to him and he says, come thou and all thy house into the ark. That is the first of many invitations given in the scripture. Many come invitations. The Bible even ends. Revelation, the spirit and the bride say what? Come. This is the first of many. Even today, the Lord openly invites all, all to come into the safety of the ark. And he is the ark. Come into the safety, the only place of security from the wrath to come. And for us today, it's not too late. It is not too late because the door isn't shut in our day, is it? It's wide open for anyone and everyone who would just come unto the Lord. Well, 377 days later, When it was finally time, oh, and by the way, when he says, come to Noah, come in the ark, where is Jesus when he's saying that? He's in the ark. Otherwise, if he was on the outside of the ark, he'd say, go, go into the ark now. It's time, go. But when he says, come, he's there in the ark. Come. Well, 377 days later, when Noah was finally able to leave the ark, after the waters receded, it only rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, that's a lot of rain. But when it rained, it poured because that whole water vapor canopy just broke open in the windows of heaven. I mean, all that water just came down like Niagara Falls on the earth for 40 days. And then the underground springs burst forth too. I mean, it was just massive. Not a local flood at all. It took a long time from the, for the waters to recede. And they covered the, all the mountains. That's not a local flood. (laughs) Anyway, so when it's finally time for him to leave the ark, God gives, uh, the Lord gives a command, not an invitation this time. This time it's a command. And what does he say? 816, look at it. He says, go forth, which tells us, where is he? Where's the Lord when he says, go forth? He's inside the ark because now Noah's with him. And he says, go forth. If he was outside the ark, he'd say, come on out, come on out. So what this tells us is that even though the, the, uh, Noah did not hear from the Lord the whole time that he was in the ark, the Lord was silent. Yet he was with him, wasn't he? He hadn't forgotten or forsaken Noah. He was right there with him. He was with him before the flood, the storm. He was with him during the storm, and he was with him after the storm. Isn't that precious? Remember when the disciples were so fearful because they were on the Sea of Galilee and suddenly a storm erupted? I mean, they, and they can come just that fast on that sea. And, the, and water, it says, was beginning to fill their boat. And they were, so, they were fearful they were going to perish. Should they have been fearful? No, because who was down in the bottom of the boat sleeping? (laughs) The Lord. Maybe he was sleeping on the ark too the whole time. Maybe he was hibernating with the animals. (laughs) But actually Noah had more faith than the Lord's own disciples because they were afraid. Are you going to let us perish, Lord? And they know who he was. 
Well, they did after that because he said, peace be still. He could have done that with the flood, couldn't he? Peace be still, instant calm. Well, after decades of watching Noah, (laughs) crazy Noah, building a huge ship and hearing him preach, how do we know he preached? Because Peter tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. Hearing him preach about impending judgment. Now, after decades and decades, almost probably a century of hearing this guy preach about a flood coming, you would think, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think that at least a few people besides his own family would get restless when two exceptional events took place? Signs from the Lord. Is the Lord going to send people signs during the seven-year tribulation? One after another, after another, after another. Well, he sent two to the people of Noah's day. One sign was Methuselah died. Okay, everybody before the Tower of Babel spoke the same language. So they knew what his name meant. When he dies, it will come. Uh Uh-oh, Methuselah died. Did you hear? He just died. Uh Uh-oh. What was the second event sign? The animals. Now, wouldn't that be a little strange (laughs) to see two lambs approaching the ark next to two lions and two dinosaurs and two snails and two, what else, scorpions and (laughs) snakes and all... That would that not get your attention? I would think so, but nobody entered the ark except his own family. Despite those ominous signs, the people of Noah's day continued to go about their normal lifestyles. How do I know that? Because Jesus told us that it said, he said they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Oh, well, you know, that's just Noah. Uh, We have no idea how those animals got here, but that's just crazy Noah. And so they just went on their merry way. And then in another amazing display of grace, Noah and his family go in the ark because he says, come. The Lord leaves the door open for how many more days? Seven more days. They're in the ark. There's no flood, no water, nothing, not one raindrop. And they stay and they must wonder, when is he going to send the water? But he leaves that door open for seven more days. Now, a lot of people equate that with the seven years of the tribulation, that people are still given the opportunity. Now, they might lose their lives, but they're still given the opportunity to get into the safety of the ark before the judgment comes at the end. Others, now Jewish rabbis, say that the reason for the seven days of grace was because Methuselah died and they had to have a seven-day period of mourning for him. Now, that's interesting, too, if he died the day that Jesus told Noah to go into the ark. Interesting. But at long last, the day of opportunity ended. In Genesis seven sixteen, we read, And the Lord shut him in. Who shut the door? The Lord himself. So that means there was no reason for Noah and his family to fear the storm of the Lord's judgment because his personal action of shutting the door gave them assurance that they were in the care of his omnipotent protection. You know, what he shuts, no man can open. No storm can open. No matter how fierce the rains and the underground reservoirs would burst forth and how fierce those waves must have been. I'm sure that ship was doing this all the time. 
and the winds and nothing, nothing could touch those safely secure in the ark. There is the security of the believer all over the Noah story, all over it. Well, when the ark finally came to rest on Mount Ararat, don't let me forget to tell you the name, what that means. Okay, Ararat, I'll tell you later. But after five months of floating through the great deluge and the aftermath of the water receding, now it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, then there's five and a half months where the rain stops, but they're still floating until finally there's a mountaintop, you know, Ararat, where it comes to rest. But they still couldn't depart from the rescue vessel. It took another two and a half months for mountaintops, other mountaintops, to appear above the floodwaters. Now, does that sound like a local flood or a global flood? Another two and a half months for, to see some other mountaintops? And the mountains came during the upheavals. There were no mountains in the pre-flood world. But then it was another 40 days before Noah opened the window at the top of the ark to release a raven, a black raven, which didn't return. Chapter 8, verse 6, it didn't return. It went out, didn't come back. Seven days later, another week goes by, he releases a what? A dove. That's in verse 8. I'm in chapter 8 by now. Now, unlike the raven, the dove would not take rest on a rotten, bloated carcass floating in the floodwaters. They won't do that. A raven is an unclean bird. It doesn't mind doing that. But the dove will not sit on something dead. And so she returned to Noah. Now, we don't see this in English. I thought I would throw this in because it's interesting. There is a pun in the Hebrew of of Genesis 8-9. Since the Hebrew word for rest is the name Noah, it actually says this. It's Manoah, technically. Manoah is the word for rest. It says that the dove found no Manoah, so she returned to Noah. That's interesting. God has a sense of humor. (laughs) Well, seven days later, Mr. Noah sent the dove forth again, second time, okay? Now, this time, she returns, returns with what in her mouth? Olive branch, okay? The olive branch represents peace. So we have rest and peace. Noah and the olive, I mean, all these things are, you can go on and on with this. There's so much typology here. But since, Noah knew this, he knew that since olive trees do not grow at higher altitudes, he knew that the waters had receded enough that there, were, there was an olive tree down there somewhere because the dove got the olive branch and brought it back to him. And yet he still waited. He hadn't heard from the Lord yet to get out of the ark. So he waits another week, another seven days, before he sends the dove out for the third time. Now, this time, she doesn't return. So Noah knew she found Noah. (laughs) She found rest. The dove's mission had been to verify that the judgment had ended. Humanity could again start afresh with Noah and his family. They had found rest. Okay, now that's the basic story. Now we're going to get into the typology or the Christology, Noah 
is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a picture of Christ. He was just and perfect, it said. He walked with God. He did, it says several times, he did according to all that God commanded him. It also tells us, by Peter tells us, he was a preacher of righteousness. Well, Christ is all those things. He is utterly just and perfect. He completely walked with God. He always did those things that his father commanded him. And he was the greatest preacher of righteousness this world has ever seen or ever will see. Noah was the physical savior of humanity. Christ is the spiritual savior of the world. As Noah was invited by the Lord to come into the ark, Christ invites all to come unto him, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Noah. (laughs) I will give you rest. You know, Noah invited anyone into the ark, any and everyone. Christ does the same thing, invites any and everyone. But only those in Noah's house were saved. Christ only saves those who come to him. That's the human responsibility side. Hebrews 3, 6 calls Christ the son of those over his own house, the church. Noah brought all those God had entrusted to his care safely through the flood judgment. It makes great pains to tell us who went in the ark and who came out. He didn't lose a single one. No one died in the ark. They all came out safely. Christ does not lose a soul entrusted to his care by his father. Remember in his high priestly prayer what he said? Those that thou gavest me I have kept and none of them is lost. Why? Because they're in his hand. No one can pluck them out. And I told you there's the security of the believer all over this story. 2 Peter 3, 5 tells us that those to whom Noah preached were willingly ignorant. So why didn't they go into the ark? Willful, willingly ignorant. Well, the people of Christ's day who heard his preaching about impending judgment were also willingly ignorant, weren't they? Noah was a carpenter preacher. Aha! Who else was a carpenter preacher? The Lord Jesus. The idea and the instructions to build a huge floating device did not come from Noah's brain. He would never have come up with that idea in a million years. They came from the Lord. Christ, the carpenter preacher, also built a vessel of safety, his church. His church is called his workmanship. As Noah had a pattern for the ark, the Lord has a pattern for his church. Noah's name, which means rest or comfort, brought rest from the storm. For he and his family, when they walked off the ark, uh, they were going to inhabit a new creation. Christ is the greater Noah, we could call him, because he gives eternal rest to believers because he has secured the new creation through his death and resurrection. Actually, the scripture, 1 Peter 3, 21, compares the flood to baptism. Christ went through the waters of baptism, the flood waters of baptism for us. He kept us safely in the ark, the church, but he went through those flood waters and came out the other end up to Ararat, didn't he? That's his resurrection, pictures his resurrection. I'm not making this up. The scripture says this. 
Speaking of rest, there's another picture of rest that is, and this is so tender, it's presented in by Noah and the dove, the dove that he sent forth from the ark. In chapter 8, verse 9, it says that she, the dove, and she was a female, because it says she, she could find no rest for the sole of her foot. At the ark window, we find that Noah is looking. You know, he's up at the window. He had sent her out, and then he keeps waiting and looking for her to see if she's going to return. And when he finally sees her, poor thing, you know, wearily returning, he puts, it says he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. I just read that straight from the scripture. Isn't that that a beautiful picture? It reminds me of the prodigal's father, you know, looking, looking for his son to return. This is a picture of the Lord who is, is patiently, patiently looking for those who are weary and cannot find a resting place. Uh, I didn't write it down. Eight, nine. When, when he sees someone coming to him, weary and heavy laden, you know what he does just like Noah? He reaches forth his nail-pierced hand, and he pulls him, them in unto, you know, he says, come unto me, come unto me, and I'll give you rest. And he pulls them in unto himself, into the safety of the ark. He is the ark. It's just a beautiful picture. Well, some 2,000 years after Noah, you know when Noah died, I, well, you know, dates differ, but it was approximately 2016-17. Where are we? The opposite side of zero, year zero, Christ, you know. He was 2,000 years before Christ. Here we are 2,000 years after Christ. But 2,000 years after Noah, there would be another even greater beginning for humanity that also involved water a dove, and the one who is the fulfillment of the ark. John the Baptist was baptizing people when Jesus appeared and wanted to be baptized by him. And John, when he baptized Jesus, saw what descend in the form of a what? (laughs) I should say who descended. The Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. It's not coincidence. We're supposed to link the doves together in the scripture. Holy Spirit appears in the form of, the do- of a dove, the only time. And where does she rest? Or where does he? Because it's the Holy Spirit. Where does he rest? On Jesus. You see, as the dove returned to Noah and the ark, because she could find no clean place to rest, the spirit in the form of a dove rested on Jesus because he alone in all the world is clean. And the only place the Holy Spirit could rest upon was Christ, the sinless one. Isn't that beautiful? Now, why can we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us when the Old Testament saints didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them? Because now we are clean. We're not just covered. We're cleansed. And so the Holy Spirit can indwell us. Well, that was Noah as a type of Christ. What about the ark? The ark is also a picture of Christ. The ark was the Lord's pre-planned provision for mankind's deliverance. 
God commanded Noah to build the ark long before a single drop of rain ever fell. Similarly, you do know that Jesus was not plan B when sin entered into Eden. From eternity past, long before a single drop of sin fell, Christ was the pre-planned provision for mankind's deliverance. The lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. The ark served as a foreshadow of Christ's incarnation when he became man. When he actually became the ark, we could say. It was designed, the ark was designed and planned by God, but it was built by man. It was built by Noah. Just like the tabernacle. The tabernacle was designed by God, but it was built by men. You see, the savior of man must be God to bear the infinite penalty for, for man's sin, but he also must be man so as to take man's place. So he must have not only a human body, like the tabernacle and the ark, but he must have a divine nature. Now, the ark was the shape of a coffin. It was also built of coffin material, gopher wood, which is like cedar. It's what they make a lot of coffins out of, and they did in the old days. Actually, somebody told me yesterday that she uses cedar in her child's room because it helps children to sleep better. And I thought, well, if the ark is made of cedar, maybe that helped all the animals in their hibernation. I'd never thought of that one before. But the the coffin material and the shape of a coffin pictures Christ's death in order to provide redemption and make believers safe from the wrath of God. Now, the pitch that sealed the ark on the inside and the out, making it waterproof secure from the destruction that fell on all of the unjust. Now, that pitch also pictures Christ. He's everything in this story. He's just everything. The Hebrew word for pitch is kafar. It's uh, the same root as kippur, yom kippur. It means atonement. So you could actually say in, uh, I don't have the verse written here either. Maybe it's 614. Thou shalt cover the ark within and without with atonement. You could actually read it that way. Kafar is used 70 times in the scripture. And it's, all, it's always in reference to atonement by way of the bl- a blood sacrifice. It's also translated in the New Testament by the word propitiation which is interesting. The Lord Jesus is our propitiation for our sins. He is the pitch that saves us from the judgment of God upon sin. The shed blood of his atonement work covers us within and without. There you go. There's, you know, our security again from the judgment to come. Now, you all know this one. There was only one door to the ark. And who said, I am the door? By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. That one's easy. He is the door. The window of the ark provided light for those inside who said, I am the light of the world. 
The ark was supplied with an abundance of rooms. I told you that the actual word is nesting places or abiding places. Christ has promised those in him, the ark, resting places. The carpenter is still at work, isn't he? What's he doing today? He's providing all those who belong to him abiding places in his father's house. There were three stories in the ark. Those who take their refuge in Christ, the ark, are saved body, soul, and spirit. And we are also saved from three levels of judgment. We're saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day, top level, even the presence of sin. There was only one family inside the ark. Aren't we all one family in the ark? There's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave, nor free, nor female. I mean, we're all one family in the ark of safety. Inside the ark, did Noah and his family do nothing? No, they had plenty of work to do inside of that ark. So do we. We, have, we are to always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. As the ark was tossed about in the tempestuous waves of that deluge, those inside were safe and secure. I don't know, maybe they had seatbelts. I think they have to have some, because they were tossed about a lot, but they were safe. The church is tossed about in this stormy world, isn't it? And yet the gates of hell itself will not prevail against her. Our lives are hid with Christ in God. The ark was the only bridge from the old antediluvian world through the judgment of the great cataclysm of the flood to the post-flood world, which Peter calls the heavens and the earth, which are now. The only bridge from that pre-flood world to the post-flood world was the ark. Well, Jesus is also a bridge, isn't he? In fact, he's the only bridge who can take us from this present world to the new heavens and the new earth of the eternal state. He is the only mediator between God and man, isn't he? So how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? We won't. Make sure you're in the ark. Well, in Genesis 8, 4, we read, and here I'm going to close up pretty soon. I'd like to save the the best for last, and I probably shouldn't do that, but... When the the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. You know what Ararat means? The curse is removed. The ark rested after completing its task of of saving those who had entered it. Christ also rested when he finished his work of redemption to reverse the curse. Ararat. Because we know he rested, because where is he now? He is resting. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. The rest of the ark on Ararat was a picture of Christ's resurrection from the stormy waters of death and destruction. Came out of the baptism and up onto Ararat. Reversed the curse. Well, the spirit through Moses, made sure to tell us the date that the ark landed on Ararat. You know what date it was? 
the 17th of the seventh month. We are not told things just for fun. There's always a reason for everything. We do have to understand that God changed Israel's calendar in Exodus 12:2, so that the seventh month, Abib, became the first month. They have two calendars, civil and religious. The religious calendar starts in the month of Nisan. The 17th of Abib is the same date as the 17th of Nisan. Now, we are given in the scripture a number of new beginning events that occurred on the 17th of Nisan. One of them was that Israel came miraculously through the opened up waters of the Red Sea to the other side. It was like her death to her old life in Egypt. Pharaoh's whole army drowned when those seas closed, just like all the unbelievers drowned in the flood. Egypt represents the world, but Israel came through and she landed on the other side. What do you think the date was? 17th of Nisan, time of new beginnings. Then there was the manna that fell from heaven. For 40 years, the manna fed the Israelites as they were wandering in the desert. Well, when it was finally time, finally, to enter into the promised land with Joshua, the manna stopped falling on the 16th of Nisan because on the 17th of Nisan, they entered into the promised land. It was a time of new beginning. And from then on, they ate of the fresh grain of the land. Okay, another one, Haman evil Haman talked the Persian king Ahasuerus into signing a decree that would annihilate the Jews. Okay? And that decree went forth on the 13th of Nisan. Well, Queen Esther, who herself was Jewish and married to the king, asked Mordecai to have the Jewish people fast and pray for three days, which they did, the 14th, 15th, and 16th. Now, she was resigned to dying. Again, we have the picture of death, okay? If I perish, I perish. She went into her husband on the 17th of Nisan. And things, miraculously, it was a new beginning because who was hanged? Haman, the evil Haman, was hanged on his own gallows and the Jews were spared from annihilation. It was a new beginning. Well, the best of all was we know that the Lord Jesus was crucified on the 14th of Nisan because that is the Passover. That is the date of the Passover. (laughs) And three days later... (laughs) He arose from the dead, and what was the date? The 17th of Nisan, the Feast of First Fruits, because he is the first fruit of the resurrection. And he was upon Ararat because the curse was reversed. Is that amazing? That is so amazing. One more amazing thing, and I'm done. <laughs> oh, there's just so much in this lesson. Okay, did you give out the charts? Or You did? You all have those little charts that... You know, when we were talking about the Sethites, you can look at it now. All right. <laughs> you
you are, you're really good. I can trust you guys. All right, there were 10. Remember the 10 antediluvian heroes of the faith? Adam to Noah. Well, their names, let me tell you their names, and let's go through this together. Adam's name in Hebrew means man, okay? You all know that. We talked about that, man. Seth, his name means appointed. Appointed. He was appointed in the place of Abel. Then you've got Enos. We talked about him. Mortal, frail, mortal, frail man. Canaan, we didn't talk about. His name means sorrow. Then Mahalalel, his name means blessed Elohim. Jared, descent or descend. Enoch, dedicated teacher, dedicated teaching. Methuselah, when he dies, it will come. Lamech, the father of Noah, his name means conqueror. And what does Noah's name mean? Rest. Okay, now in this, we have the gospel message. And you can read it. You take it home and study it and see what you come up with. But there's two ways to read this. You could say, and I didn't write this one down, but you could say that man, Adam, the second, not the second, the last Adam, Christ, Adam, was appointed to be a mortal, a frail mortal, a man of sorrow. Who was he? Blessed Elohim. And he descended as a dedicated teacher. And when he dies, it will come. What? Conquering rest and comfort. Or you can read it the other way that I wrote down there below. Man is appointed. Us, we, man is appointed, mortal, frail, sorrow. But because blessed Elohim descended, when he dies, it will come. What will come for us? Conquering rest and comfort. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Wait till you read your notes. You're going to have fun with your notes. Basic lessons learned from the life of Noah. Here they are. Don't miss the boat. And remember, we're all in the same boat. Plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Here's a good one. For heaven's sake, travel in pairs. (laughs) Speed isn't always an advantage. Remember, the snail was on the same ark as the cheetah, and they both arrived at the same time. When you're feeling stressed, float a while. Now, this one is my favorite. Remember, amateurs built the ark. Professionals built the Titanic. (laughs) And no matter the storm, when you're with God, there, there is always a rainbow waiting. Good? Those are in your notes, too.